Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, along with my co-host, Matt. Hey. And today we're joined by Mr. Andy Vick. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks. Pleasure to be here, guys. Awesome. So I know Andy from my former job at the laboratory where he was, uh, where he still are, the regional manager of several different laboratories, correct? That's correct. Yeah, I was, uh, uh, and there's just been a transition fairly recently, but I was a corporate vice president of our safety assessment business at Charles River overseeing all of our Midwest sites, which were, goodness, five five sites and close to 3,500 employees, but have just transitioned into our uh, commercial business as a global account manager. So um, so that's uh, that's new change, but uh, new new challenges and, and uh, new journey. So I'm excited. Yeah, so uh, I met Andy via the Mold Brothers, Micah and Josiah. Uh, and you're actually the guy that got my Dominican Red Mountain bows from. That's right. So kind of eternally grateful to him for that. <laughs> so uh, you want to give us a little bit of background about uh, how you first got to reptiles and like what all you do with them at the moment? Sure. I could, I could go on for uh, a while on that topic. So I'll let, stop me when I, uh, when I get a little too deep into it and, uh, and otherwise I might go for an hour on that question alone, but in terms of what got me into the hobby, you know, I'll tell you, it's um, about as early as I can remember. And I, and I, and I've been a hobbyist for at least 35 years. I celebrated the, uh, the uh, big 50 in July this year. And so actually 35 years is probably almost like 40. And, and I've had just a fascination with, with reptiles uh, since, uh, since as early as I can remember. And, and, you know, there, I was probably satisfied with kind of, you know, finding them under a rock or under a log or something like that out in the woods when I was, you know, the earlier than 10, but then that, that kind of interest at the 10 to 15 kind of started to turn into wanting to maybe keep, keep one of them as a, as a pet. And, and I just remember being just fascinated and still am just about how well adapted they are to their environment. They're kind of really masters of adaptation, even, you know, on a, on a, um, you know, on an evolutionary standpoint and even, even just built to perfection. And when you think about, even some species of reptiles and how, how really little they've changed in, in thousands of years, tens of thousands of years of, of, um, of existence. I mean, that really just kind of speaks to how well engineered, how perfectly designed they are for success and some of the, uh, you know, for, uh, for survival and even thriving in their environments and, and some of the harshest environments, you know, that, uh, that, that are on the planet. So, so again, that, interest and uh, just kind of really the awe and fascination and and them as a species really across the whole um, all all members of the reptile uh, family just uh, took off and that wasn't enough had to you know needed to own one and I still remember um, technically my first reptile pet was a boa constrictor that was probably about six or seven foot long it was only a pet for about 24 hours because like probably most young boys there, they love reptiles, but sometimes their mothers do not. And so I remember, you know, this was dropped off at a pet store where I was frequenting. I mean, I was probably at this pet store every day, uh, seeing what was new in, in the pet store. 
and they had a drop off of a snake. And then next thing I knew, I was asking the store manager, you know, any chance I could adopt the snake? Yes. Uh, the snake was coming home with me. And, and I think when my mother realized that that last, that uh, realized that that night there were, you know, there were some tears, there was some screaming and, and the uh, snake was going back to the pet store for, uh, you know, the next morning. And, you know, as, as any good hobbyist, um, you know, challenges like that don't stop us. It's not for the faint of heart. And so that just kind of almost made my interest in keeping a reptile as a, as a pet even greater. And I think within even a couple of months, I was back out at back out at it again. And I think my second attempt was a couple of ball pythons. At this point, I think my parents might have even, you know, admitted defeat and realized that my interest and my passion uh, for the hobby was going to be greater than their, uh, you know, than their concern or, uh, of, you know, then, then, and let's admit it in most cases, it's just kind of an irrational fear. And so um, to attest as a testament to my parents and, and they probably need celebrated, uh, we ought to just take a moment to acknowledge all of the parents who's, who probably had zero interest in reptiles, uh, but yet they knew that their sons and their daughters uh, were passionate about it. And so they kind of put their own uh, opinions on the sidelines and they put them on hold to, uh, to support, you know, our interests. So I, I certainly give credit to my parents for, for, allowing me uh, to do that. And it didn't take long for um, for my bedroom to even turn into a, a, a bit of a, a mini zoo. Um, I mean, I even started with, uh, you know, different monitor species, uh, different snakes, mostly, as I recall, probably ball pythons, Burmese pythons. And, and frankly, just as the, the older I got to kind of go fast forward uh, quite a bit, the, the older I got, um, Frankly, the more um, interested in the hobby I got and the more income I made, <laughs> the, the, the bigger the hobby got as well. It still, it still is a hobby, but it's, um, you know, I think it's an increasingly sophisticated hobby because my knowledge of, of the animals just continues to grow. I'm a, I'm a, you know, a forever student, always trying to hone you know, our craft. And, and I really, really take great pride in providing you know, captive husbandry that is um, second to none. And, and I think that as a result, it's, it's, uh, it's translated though to having, you know, uh, very healthy animals that I can enjoy, that others can enjoy. And, and that's been a blessing, but a um, lot of things in between that I can certainly expand on. Um, you know, I'm, uh, you know, even my, my, my interest, my career is, is quite animal related. I finished my, um, uh, bachelor's degree in zoology and my my PhD in pharmaceutical chemistry and and we might even circle back to the the one time in my career where um, where my interest in reptiles and my uh, interest in pharmaceutical drug development merged with the I, I was part of one of the scientists uh, and contributing um, contributing scientists in the discovery and the development of exenatide which many of you might recognize as is a um, peptide that was identified in the saliva of a Gila monster uh, and is one of the most potent uh, treatments for type 2 diabetes that's on really? the market. So, so I'll, I'll bore you with that maybe later on in the podcast. Yeah. But back to you for, for extra questions, Nate. Well, I was just going to mention real quick, um, going off what you were saying about parents and, and all that stuff, 
Um, so what, one thing that I, that I think is interesting between me and Nate is I'm more interested in like the, the research aspect of reptiles and he's really into the hobby and stuff. And we, we have interest in both as well, but like those are expertises and stuff. And so my first two like major reptiles I had were much later in life because uh, growing up, I always, you know, my parents didn't like reptiles either. Well, mostly my mom. And so I'd go out and catch reptiles, keep them for a week or two, and then let them go. So I didn't really like get like a pet pet. Um, till much later in the, the first two major ones I had, I got a ball Python and, um, someone, uh, someone told me that their cousin had it and they were trying to get rid of it and stuff. And so I went without telling my mom or anything, I went and talked to them. They gave it to me, the tank and everything brought it home. And then one day I just brought it downstairs and my mom freaked out, of course. And at that point I had it. So, you know, <laughs> so she didn't do anything about it. And then the second one was my professor gave me a tegu and I had it for probably about nine months before my mom even knew I had it. I kept it in my closet, my room. It it was a large enough space and everything. I had everything figured out, but I had it for nine months. My mom had no idea I had it. And then (laughs) I ended up, um, I moved down to Florida. So I had to get rid of it. I I actually gave it to Nate. Um, But I had to drop it off at a professor's place um, so that Nate could go get it because I wasn't going to go all the way up to Ohio and everything. So I dropped it off there. So in order to do that, I went downstairs to my mom because she was going to drive up with me and everything to go up there. And I was like, by the way, this is also going to be a passenger with us. And I showed her a picture of the Tegu I had in my closet. She's like, what the? You have an alligator in your room? (laughs) And I was like, no, no, no. It's just a Tegu and stuff. But it was... It was pretty funny. So I had it for nine months. She had no idea I had it until oh I goodness. ended up giving it away. So yeah, and it's it's you know even hearing you describe that, I think it's you know it's a good clarification because I say you know I think at you know ten or eleven or twelve years old, yeah, I've probably in my mind I was probably thinking you know pet, but I I definitely over the last 35, 40 years, it's um you know it, it's really more the research side the yeah the husbandry side, the conservationist side, the, um, you know, the education side, you know, particularly trying to, cause it's interesting, even in some of the reptile education I've done, young, young kids are rarely, if ever afraid of, of snakes and lizards. It's only, it's only, uh, you know, as they, as they gain a little bit of age, as they get a little bit older. And so that's just kind of even a reminder that that, that fear is probably a learned behavior. It's um, it's certainly not innate because some kids, even young kids, four or five years old, they they have you know I think a respect for reptiles, but not not a fear of. But um, yeah, so pet, I probably used pet, but I don't know in my lifetime of of uh, kind of being involved in the hobby and even the mm-hmm. discipline that that I've ever had a uh, a, a name for one of my. Um, animals that was different than what you know they're usually referred to as their genus species and yeah. maybe their common yeah. name at, at most so there was ne- there's never been a teddy or a fluffy uh, <laughs> or anything like that but um but yeah so definitely enjoy the research more like you mentioned that well and i think actually my mom you know being apprehensive actually kind of helped that because i've always been kind of that way minded but mm-hmm. because of her not really letting me have pets and forcing me to go out and catching them and keeping them for a few months and letting them go and stuff. I really enjoyed observing their behavior and stuff, which kind of helped cultivate that. So it was, it probably had the opposite effect of what you wanted it to have, but it it actually turned out to be a good thing. So Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, earlier you mentioned you have um, Brazilian rainbow boas and some uh, rhino rat snakes. So what are some of the other stuff that you have in your collection? Yeah. So my current collection is is a little bit a little bit ADHD. I'm trying to kind of even at this stage of um, you know of my career, this stage of my uh, life and and certainly as it relates to this hobby, I'm even kind of finding myself doing a little soul searching and and kind of zeroing in maybe on some species that I enjoy the most, maybe that my even that my setup is the most conducive to providing high quality husbandry for. But uh, so that that's still a uh, a development process. But right now I have um, you know a great collection uh, with a mix of old world rat snakes. Uh, my friend. Uh, Matt Most, uh, that many of you probably know out of the Indianapolis area, uh, definitely turned me on to old world rat snakes. So I have some Thai bamboo rat snakes, some Mandarin rat snakes, uh, Mullendorfs. Uh, I have some rhino rat snakes. Uh, a lot of that is uh, even um, Matt's bloodline, um, maybe some Zirkle bloodline uh, sprinkled into the to that mix. Uh, and then in addition, um, uh, a lot of... Uh, just kind of a little bit more unusual mid-sized constrictors. One one thing, it's a bit of an arbitrary rule, but um, you know, my my mother uh, disliked reptiles and still does, and and the wife, my wife who I've been married to for 28 years, has carried on that disdain <laughs> for reptiles. So out of respect for her, um, I try not to keep anything in the ginormous scale. So kind of a, at a six foot max, uh, but I've really enjoyed um, like those mid-sized constrictors like the Australian Woma pythons. Uh, I do have a group of uh, Colombian rainbow boas, Brazilian rainbow boas. I have a pair of diamond pythons, uh, a few other odds and ends uh, that are just kind of good species for education as well, like Mexican black kings, some corn snake morphs, uh, a, a couple of scaleless uh, rats and some uh, Texas rat snakes. And a, and a pair of Ackies. That was kind of my return to, um, to, to monitors, some of the dwarf uh, monitors. So the uh, Vranisacanthus have been, have been added back to the list. There's, there's probably a few others that I'm missing, but that, that hits most of the collection. Yeah, I've kind of uh, been doing a little bit of the same thing with my like mid-sized constrictors and I guess you could cl classify scrub pythons as a bit larger than midsize, mm -hmm. at least mm -hmm. a full grown. Yeah. But I mean, mine now are probably about five foot long at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I just found that Australasian pythons have always been kind of the group of snakes that interested me the most. Mm. But now Micah's been kind of dragging me into uh, neotropical boas. <laughs> so my. Uh... Uh, Go ahead, Nate. Sorry. So yeah, I guess uh, my field's been expanding a little bit in that regard. My 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 particular uh, interest favorites are monitor lizards. Those are my absolute favorite. So it's cool to hear you have Ackies. Um, what what do you think of those? How do you like them? They're I I've loved them. I said I'm a big fan of. Uh, I mean, pretty much the whole genus Veronidae. I'm I'm a huge monitor uh, lover, but. Uh, but the Ackies kind of come in a in a size that's more conducive for right. the facility that I have. But they're they're a great 
great personality. Uh, just, you know, they're, I, I've really enjoyed them again, my, with my job and with my travel, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I fare a little bit better with snakes uh, for, you know, I guess the one good thing that COVID has caused is it's had me, it's had my travel uh, reduced quite a bit. So snakes generally uh, fit a little bit more flexible, flexibly into my collection just because of my travel. Whereas the, the one drawback with uh, the Ackies is, is they're, you know, I'm feeding them mostly uh, dubia roaches and some other insects uh, an occasional pinky about every other day. So mm-hmm. with with my travel being shut down largely because of the pandemic, that has been a, a good thing. When my travel kicks back up, I'll I'll have to um, try to sweet talk my wife into uh, helping out with their feeding, which you how, can imagine how well that'll go. Exactly. How are they like handle handling wise? They, you know, they handle quite well. I, I've had um, I've had two pair. And of the of the four, there was only one female that would would uh, and again she wasn't. They're not real hyperactive at all. I think all four are fairly calm. They don't they don't necessarily have that typical monitor behavior where they're trying to beat you with their tail or, or wrap your arms up in a, in a bear hug and and leave a few uh, scratches as a as a uh, present. So they're they're much more laid back than that. Out of the four, like I said, only one female. Had a little bit of a habit that if you weren't, you know, paying a bit of attention, she would just kind of turn her head to the side and give you a a, a bite on a thumb or a finger, uh, whatever digit was closest. Uh, and that was pretty unusual because all of the other three, even with uh, limited handling, uh, they still they still just would, uh, you know, they would socialize well and and you could scoop them up out of the cage uh, without uh, any stress any obvious stress to them or, or any uh, stress to me as a, as the handler. So they've been great. Awesome. What is your, um, Woma Python? Um, yes, so I've, I've, I've seen those and stuff, but I don't really know much about them. What, what just kind of, what are they like? Yeah, they're actually probably one of my favorites as well. They're, mm-hmm. uh, Australian species, obviously one of the, one of the few species that doesn't have the heat sensing, uh, pits and and that's just something that's kind of you know again some sometimes those little things that stand out kind of probably compared to like a chondros or something that would have just big uh, big pits the uh, the womas have none and it's and it makes sense it's just again it's a nuance of their uh, of their adaptation their primary diet and and uh, you know from where they're um, originally from is is probably bearded dragons and other lizards. And so they just re- there's really never a reason to develop that as a as a physical trait. Um, but they're a great species. I think good size. You know, uh, uh, I think my male is probably four feet. My female is pushing six feet. So they're reasonable reasonable size. I think they do very well in in a captive environment. Um, a, a little bit more. I, I keep them. Um, and about a six foot cage, you know, with an aspen sub uh, aspirin, aspen sub uh, cypress blend substrate, and a water bowl hide. Um, they're great feeding response. Uh, again, they're feeding. They feed a little bit more on on motion. So uh, mm. sometimes just the the flip of a of a rodent, they they turn on to rodents very easy, even as babies. I think the blackheads sometimes 
I understand I haven't worked with them, but they can be a little bit trickier to get started eating. The Womas, in my experience, I've had a couple of uh, clutch of Woma babies. They're, uh, they're quite hearty eaters and they'll take uh, rodents. Um, even I don't know that I had to do any kind of lizard scenting. They just took rodents quite easily. And a lot of that was just motion activated. Uh, but they, they've been one of my favorite. The pattern is uh, absolutely gorgeous. You could just imagine they blend in perfectly in their natural setting in the outback of, of Australia. So I have a pair of them that are probably and their geriatric phase, they are probably 20, they're probably pushing 25 years. Um, so they've been a long-term uh, pair that I've had. And then I have maybe a two-year-old female that I just kind of brought into the collection. Someone was letting her go and I had a sweet spot for it. Now they're kind of shaped a little funny. Is that for burrowing in the sand? Do you know? You know, that is a good question. Um, not, I, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, I, I, I guess I have um, almost gotten used to their, yeah. <laughs> kind of their body type that I have. I don't know that I've noticed, but you're right. They don't have much um, like some constrictors, even some, you know, boas and, and pythons will have a little bit more. We'll, we'll just kind of call it a little bit more triangulation to the head where, yeah, you yeah. know, and, and the Womas don't. So I, I certainly suspect that that's, um, probably an adaptation to, if not some burrowing, just uh, from life in a, in a sandy environment. So, yeah. So uh, you mentioned, uh, yeah, rhino rat snakes. Uh, from what I understand, those are primarily uh, piscivorous, correct? Yeah. Say that, say one, that more one more time. From what I understand, they're primarily piscivorous, correct? Yes. Fish eaters. So yeah, how is that? How's that factor in with uh, captive husbandry and all that? So that, yeah, great question. I think um, um, the rhino rat snakes, I think that they have been one of those species that maybe individuals that have considered them have maybe been turned off for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons might be price, and that still might be the reason. Uh, but the other reason is uh, also just they have kind of a reputation of being a difficult baby uh, to get started eating. And, and I don't know that that, that has not been my experience. Um, and, and probably I'll, uh, uh, oh, no problem. I will probably, uh, have, uh, give a little bit of credit to, uh, Matt most because he's also taught me a bit about making sure, uh, how to successfully feed the babies. But I, and, and that is they, as babies, they rarely will eat directly uh, pinky mice. Every once in a while, maybe you have one out of 10 rhino rat snake babies that will accept uh, a pinky mouse as their first meal. And so what I'll generally do, again, a basic setup for a rhino rat snake baby is maybe a six quart rack uh, with a little sphagnum moss, a little hide, and, and maybe like a 12 ounce or 16 ounce deli cup. And so I'll start feeding them by introducing a few uh, rosy reds or little little minnows. And I know um, I know there's always some concern about that in some of the uh, I think it's the thiamine, if I'm not mistaken, that that can um, uh, that can that can almost produce a little bit of a, a, a toxicity chronically uh, to the to the rat snakes. But in terms of getting some first meals into them, those rosy reds I think work. Uh, perfectly. 
And then what I'll do after I just do a couple of meals of rosy reds is I'll just introduce a frozen thawed pinky right into that same deli cup with the rosy reds and just the, you know, maybe it's just the motion of the rosy reds and they're creating a little bit of, um, you know, of movement of the pinky in the water. More often than not, that transition from rosy red to pinky by using that technique over the course of three or four weeks, um, it works beautifully. Um, like I said, every once in a while, um, they'll take pinkies right out of the gate. But uh, with my babies, uh, and if I have the time and I do just a real slight kind of tease feed or an assist feed, I can get that transition happening even a bit more quickly. But if you've got 12, 14, 16 rhino rat snake babies, that's a lot of extra time that you sometimes don't always have. So the rosy red uh, with the pinkies in the water over a few weeks, next thing you know it, they're, they're, they're eating entirely pinkies. Now it is interesting though, because that is a very aquatic species, much more than you would imagine based on the you know, the body type of that snake, you would think this snake is built for the life, uh, life in the trees, completely arboreal. But I will say my rhino rat snakes, they're, they're spending at least 50% of their time in a water bowl. And so mm -hmm. I always give them a container that is large enough for them to completely submerge. And some of them I'll say, and it may even be related to that early uh, feeding, uh, the feeding kind of scenario that I just described even as adults, they'll sometimes prefer to feed in an aquatic environment. I even have had on occasion a couple of adults that they'll only take a rodent prey when they're in the water. Uh, and if they're, if they're in the terrestrial side or the, uh, you know, if they're on the substrate side and you introduce that same prey, disinterest. But if they're bathing uh, um, in their water container, you know, game on, feed me. Uh, and feed me another one if you have time. So they, they really retain a lot of um, a lot of aquatic tendencies, even as adults. So uh, pertaining to the water bowl size, like how big do these uh, snakes get? So like give an idea of how big a water bowl for them. Should yeah. Be. yeah, yep, absolutely. So as, um, as I was mentioning for the babies, I'll, I'll use like a little 12 ounce deli cup and that's, that's plenty. Um, even, even by the time they're a year or so, which is usually when they're going through their color transition, kind of from that grayish brown to the green, um, you know, we're, we're still talking about, uh, you know, like a sandwich size deli cup, you know, something you might be able to fit your PB and J sandwich. And even for an adult, um, I'm still using like a, like a six quart tub uh, as a, as a, um, is a, is their water environment and and that's plenty to fit you know even adult or if it's breeding time even both a male and female can crawl in there a big a big rhino rat snake is probably um you know i think i've got some four four and five footers but but kind of built quite like a corn snake in terms of overall uh length and um and and diameter so they're not they're not that um you know, there's not that much body to them. So yeah, like a six quart tub, even for a doll is perfect for, uh, you know, for, uh, soaking in no, no reason you couldn't go bigger though. They'd enjoy it. What, um, what's your favorite, uh, reptile? Well, first off are snakes. Are you more of like a snake guy? 
I'm assuming, just based on our conversation? You know, only um, – yeah, that's interesting. I, I would say equally lizard and snake mm -hmm. guy. I am, uh, and I'm fascinated uh, on both sides of that spectrum. Yeah. Because of my schedule and what is most conducive to snakes are... uh, my schedule and my ability to provide, you know, uh, uh, appropriate care and husbandry, I've – I've kind of drifted towards snakes just because of their feeding frequency and sometimes their uh, uh, their cage cleaning is a little less frequent than than obviously some lizards that might be you know daily feeders to every other day feeders. So, what's your favorite species between snakes and lizards? Oh boy, um, <laughs> yeah. de definitely on the lizard side. You know, I've already mentioned I've got definitely a sweet spot for for Varanus and, and even the Ackies are right up there. I mean, I really enjoyed them. Um, but yeah, they've been a blast. And on the snake side, uh, rhino rat snake, the old world rat snakes, definitely um, rhino rat snakes are up there. Um, uh, let me think. Yeah, rhino rat snakes are probably right up there, but uh, like even those, those uh, Molendorfs, the flower horns, uh, hunter flower horns are, are awesome. Um, the cocci are awesome, but uh, yeah, at the top of the list, at least from a colubrid standpoint, probably be rhino, and from a constrictor standpoint, would probably be um, might even be the Brazilian rainbow boas. Mm. Um, they might be one notch higher than the womas. The, even, even, even though I've been bit by them more often. <laughs> um, are you? Are you sure it's not a Dominican red mountain boas? Because even after you get rid of them, you seem to keep getting them. <laughs> they they were definitely up there, and it was that was just kind of one of those things where I had um, a pair of the red phase, and when they say red phase, these were really rich red, and and I think you guys even had uh, Paul Bodnar on uh, yeah. earlier, and those were um, I definitely acknowledge Paul; those were his babies, and great uh great rich red uh big female uh i mean i'm guessing nate she was at least she was pushing at least five five and a half maybe even six foot probably bigger now and 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 definitely bigger than the male counterpart but he was he was still every bit of a four feet um just gorgeous snakes but a, a direction that i didn't know that i was going to go and and i knew nate well enough to know that uh he would give him uh High class care and and maybe even be successful at at their captive breeding. So, would they you, are yeah they are gorgeous. Would um, so obviously you know you mentioned that you don't have like a ton of time to, but would you ever be interested in doing um, hots at all? <laughs> I think um, probably the short answer would be yes uh if my irrational brain was allowed to uh to operate without without uh uh without any kind of uh intervention but i i honestly just think um and, and i have i have kind of dabbled with it i think even on the the bucket list of hot would probably be even something like uh just you know good old keistradon contortrix just a a copperhead and um because, but I, I don't know that I would do that. And I, in even that, there's probably a few reasons. One, I, I already mentioned I've been married for 28 years and I'd like to still stay married. And, and if she, and the only way I'd be able to do that is to outright lie. And that's not, 
not, uh, that's not good. A good pattern for a successful marriage. So, yeah. so I wouldn't even ask because she would definitely not be in favor of of bringing venomous in uh, in the house. And and the closest thing I have been able to get to that, and, and it adds to my list. I just forgot about, and, and they're right up there on the on, on the pecking order. And that's false water cobra. I haven't decided if I love them or, or hate them, but I have a, a trio <laughs> of false water cobras. And then I and I do love. Um, Barons. Uh, I've got a pair of Barons racers, uh, the Baron Eye, and uh, and, uh, and I'm adding to the list, and a pair of Yellowtail Krebos, uh, which I I now you you probably think I was drunk earlier in the show because the Yellowtail Krebos are amongst my favorite, and that's um, and the Baron Eye and the False Water Cobra and the Yellowtail Krebos. Uh, they I was turned on to all of those. Those are Zach. Um, Oh, and Zach's going to hate me if he ever listens to this. I, I believe his last name is Lohman. He is a professor at um, at uh, university in West Virginia, and one of the most knowledgeable guys you could ever meet. So, I'll I'll I'll, I'll beg for forgiveness for Zach for for forgetting his last name, but but I can provide you his contact because he would make an excellent future um, uh, oh, definitely. future podcast uh, yeah, guest. Yeah, send to me after the show. Sure, I'll write down. Um, yeah, yellow, yellow tail crit. Yeah, now you got me. I, I, yeah. I, I must have been sleeping. Yeah, they're, they're, um, they're pretty awesome. I uh, that's the copperheads are what um, I would actually. We get a lot of those where I live growing up, and so I would actually catch them, keep them for a little bit. Those one of the ones, and my mom didn't like that at all. But I always. Whenever that happened, that's when I started trans, you know, moving them from my garage up into my room so that way she didn't, she wouldn't see them and stuff. But and let those go. But I I did copyright research with Eastern Kentucky University, so oh did you? They're one that's of yeah. It was a, it was a lot of fun. They're one of my favorite um, uh, snakes, honestly. Uh, yeah, I really like them. They're beautiful and and stuff. I actually got to see while I was there too. I actually got to see um, this wasn't a wild one; it was a captive one. But I got to see it give birth. Which was oh, really my. cool. Yeah. Yeah, they were pretty common, and uh, we we lived in the St. Louis uh, area, um, St. Louis, Missouri area for for about six years, and they were quite common uh, yeah. in that zip code. Um, I guess you brought me back because uh, I got I got distracted. Like uh, I was starting to think of yellowtail crebos like squirrels. I had the squirrel effect, but um, yeah. in, in addition to preserving my my marriage, the other thing that scares me about Venomous is frankly just me. Uh, because mm -hmm. even though I've been doing this for 35 years, I'm still, uh, and I've got great uh, facility that is that is escape proof. It is, um, you know, it's I, I use a lot of automation and, and uh, my facility as well, but it's not idiot proof. Yeah. Uh, and so mm -hmm. I still, you know, there's that moment where maybe I forgot to slide a rack in completely or uh, or maybe I just, you know, got distracted by a false water cobra and I, you know, I still get bit on occasion. Yeah. And for venomous, you know, that's both of those things don't fly very well uh, when you're considering venomous. So for my own, because, because I know me well enough, I know that I don't, I just don't know that um, unless I went with something fairly impotent in terms of uh, venom potency, um, I, I don't know that I'd even experiment with it because it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be if I got bit. It would just be when, and yeah. and that's uh, that's a uh, I'm getting 
you know, I'm 50 years old. I'm thinking about grandkids. So, Would you be interested at all in like a Gila monster or a beaded lizard? Now that, yes. Uh, and if, and I, and they have been um, kicked around. There's, I've even come close to those on occasion. Um, and so that, that I might consider, particularly again, if I knew my, my travel situation was, mm, was, yeah. uh, was not, you know, maybe like when I'm pre-retired and I, and I'm not traveling, uh, and I know that I could pr provide proper care and husbandry for, uh, some lizard species. Again, that, that would definitely be an option. That's something yeah, I, thought I really want one. Yeah. Same here. And they're still legal in Ohio without a permit, right? I believe that's the case. Now, like I said, they've often said, and I can completely understand why that the false water cobras kind of make perfect uh, training species. If you're considering that transition to venomous yeah. and, and they are, they are properly neurotic. And so I can, <laughs> and, and unpredictable. The only thing predictable about them is they, they want to, um, they're so food motivated that they just kind of, charge every time i open the rack even even a couple of inches i mean they i at least two of my three false water cobras they they throw two-thirds of their body out of the enclosure ready for a meal um and i think if you ask mike a mold about that as well who yeah. you've mentioned a couple times he he is also undecided. It's kind of a love-hate relationship with false water cobras. So. Yeah, I've seen his uh, water cobras. I, so <laughs> they're, uh, like you said, neurotic. They are. But, fe but feeding machines, um, I mean, they're a little bit of a high metabolism species, ideally being fed every, more like every five days. Um, not huge meals, though, but they uh, they just, they pass, they pass, um food through their system uh and no time so they're they're just thinking about you know maybe two things and that's feeding and and hopefully breeding one of these days yeah but uh circling back to the uh helodermas mm -hmm. uh from my personal experience working at the bob jones serpentarium with a mm -hmm. collection of heel heel monsters and beetle lizards they have there they're actually a surprisingly low maintenance species it's almost yeah. like a once a week like a almost like a snake like yeah. uh husbandry schedule for them so that's kind of what's interesting me it's just because i mean i don't know i think they're a cool lizard and they don't require all the upkeep of like a monitor they're gorgeous yeah so you you've brought me back to hill monster so i'll, I'll talk a little bit about exenatide so yeah, yeah i was actually so i started doing kayak tours on the side yeah um and I actually was just talking about this too, because when they hear that I, I work with, uh, I do herpetology and stuff, they, they, they get all excited and ask all questions and stuff. And um, I was actually just talking to someone about this, about the diabetes medication made from the heel. Sure. I'm actually super interested in this. Yeah, I will. I, again, I'll try to keep it concise because I could definitely even talk about this for, for mm -hmm. quite some time, but it is, and I'll even start by saying that, that this whole space and we'll call it, we'll just call it, pharmacognosy, which is the study of natural products for its medicinal benefit. It, it's it, it's almost like fashion. It's uh, pharmacognosy kind of comes in and out of fashion in the industry. But the cool thing is, is it's very much back in fashion. And, and you know, I'm a believer that, that I feel like just God gave us all of the things we need just right there in, in nature. And so when when we get scientists and chemists and biochemists starting to 
to really tease uh, beneath the surface of of nature as a resource for medicine. I think that's just just how it was intended. And so, sorry for that digression, but I think then when you consider, so what what they, what, you know, and this is a little bit history and my, um, my memory probably isn't great, but it'll be close enough to recall the highlights. So researchers had, had realized that the Gila monster, uh, it's venom and most venom is a, is a cocktail of peptides and proteins. Uh, but then in that cocktail of the venom of the Gila monster, basically the saliva of the, the Gila monster, they identified a peptide called Xendin, I think, uh, Xenotide. And the, what the researchers realized when they basically uh, isolated that peptide, they realized that it had a high degree of homology, um, I think on the order of 70 to 80 percent to a human peptide called glucagon-like peptide. Uh-huh. And glucagon-like peptide is a, is a very potent um, glucose, glucose regulator that has efficacy uh, for, for particularly type 2 diabetes. Uh, not necessarily type one, but definitely type two diabetes. And uh, the problem with glucagon-like peptide, though, is it's very, um, as a peptide, it's very proteolytically unstable, and it and so in in circulation, it probably has a biologic half-life of literally minutes, uh, which really limits its its uh, its clinical use and its commercialization. Because uh, a peptide like that would almost the only thing that you the only way that you could ra- really uh, dose that kind of peptide for, you'd almost have to administer it by a pump or a constant infusion so that you could uh, maintain therapeutic uh, drug levels. Um, so anyway, they found this Xendin and, and it had a high degree of homology to, um, to this human glucagon-like peptide, but it was quite a bit more stable. So there was just enough amino acid differences and the nature of those amino acids conferred much improved stability of that uh, of that peptide and, and equally potent, if not even greater potency in terms of um, glycemic control and, and improvement of HbA1c, which is kind of the, the critical endpoint for type 2 diabetes management. So researchers, uh, and this was kind of a joint venture, frankly, between Amlin Pharmaceuticals and Eli Lilly and Company, which is where I worked for about eight years, and they jointly developed that product as a twice a day um, uh, therapeutic. So instead of having to administer it continuously as a pump, which might not have even, even been viable at this point, they were able to administer it twice a day as a subcut- uh, subcutaneous injection. Its commercial name is called Bietta, uh, I think B-Y-E-T-T-A, and it was, uh, it's been really a very successful uh, commercial product uh, for Lilly, and, and most importantly, it's been um, you know, it has changed the lives of, of a lot of type 2 diabetic uh, patients around the world and in the millions. To add to that story even a little bit more, so even even that is still, though, just a twice a day, um, you know, it still requires two injections a day, usually around mealtime for glucose uh, control. And, and so if you're a diabetic and you don't particularly like needles, the holy grail was maybe something even less frequent, maybe even once a week. So um, myself and two other individuals at Eli Lilly, Wolfgang Glazner and Richard DeMarkey, we basically, um, through a proprietary linker, connected that, uh, you know, a, a, an Xendin-like peptide to the FC region of an antibody, of an IgG, so the trunk of that kind of Y-shaped 
uh, antibody and, and basically extended the time action of even that BID product to a once a week product. So instead of mm-hmm. 14 to 21 injections, uh, patients are now only having to take one injection a week. And that product is called dulaglutide uh, or Trulicity. You might even see Trulicity on the yeah. uh, on the TV uh, yeah. from, from time to time. And, and, and I was one of the three inventors of that product. And, and that even has a little bit of, let's just say that brings us all the way back um, circular to to heloderm uh, lizard spit. So one one of the numerous medical advancements that we've seen, not only from natural products, but even specifically in, in venom. I think researchers continue to evaluate uh, venom for, for stroke, ischemia, pain management, uh, and a lot of different therapeutic benefits. So I'm, I'm a big, big advocate for, uh, for hoping that we continue to do that. So yeah. You know, last guest we had on, uh, Dr. Kent Vlight, University of Florida, using a lot of research with uh, peptides and crocodilian uh, oh, immune great. systems. I had and, no idea. Okay. Yeah. So uh, if Charles River wants to ever start up like a crocodilian <laughs> blood bank, uh, I'm ready to receive funding. I'm ready to, I'll be right there with you, Nate. We'll, uh, we'll do it together. That does sound awesome. I bet we could re- recruit a couple of mold boys too. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mike would be like, Okay, we need more lace. No specific reason. We just need them. Yeah, I mean, you think about it. I mean, our, you know, I think sometimes our um, our egos as as humans get in the way, and we really think that we understand more about uh, our world and more about our the natural uh, environment than we do. We're we're still just scratching the surface. Sure. It's, uh, uh, it's pretty cool. If I if I had it to do all over again, um, I'd I'd probably be in a natural products lab somewhere. There's um there's some guy that developed a bunch of medications just by he spent months, probably a couple of years in the woods just watching um, uh, apes and seeing yep. what they do to you know like when they get a stomach what they do and stuff would pick that stuff figure out what was working why it was working and then developed a bunch of medication just from doing that and makes crazy. perfect sense. The so the last guy we had on I asked him this question. Um, uh, he didn't really know exactly, so may- maybe you'll know more. I had heard, and this might be more of a, um, the I heard this on a documentary, and they, they might have been uh, more uh, embellishing more on it, but mm-hmm. it was talking about that they're uh, researching taking an enzyme that exists in Gila monsters. So like Gila monsters, you know, in the wild, they don't get to eat a lot because they're in the desert. So they have an enzyme that helps uh, regulate their insulin and stuff, I guess. Yeah. And um, so they were talking about taking that enzyme and somehow inserting it into humans so that they wouldn't need medication. They could take that and they'd be able to regulate their insulin properly. Have you heard anything about that? I, I haven't, but it, it's it's almost an identical storyline as the um, the discovery and development of exenotype, which was okay. you know, which was a peptide from the same species. And, and has a lot of the same um, anti-diabetic efficacy. So, so the notion that you're describing of, of research, researchers to kind of go back to that, that uh, venom cocktail of a Gila monster to see if there's still uh, some peptides, proteins, enzymes, uh, or other constituents that might have uh, pharmaceutical value, that doesn't strike 
that doesn't shock me at all. I mean, it, it seems like it would be a, a gold mine opportunity. So I'm not, I'm not myself specifically aware of that particular research, but it, it, it seems, um, uh, it, it seems very uh, plausible to me. Yeah. Cool. Cause you're right. That was even the same with the, uh, you know, some, I, I remember some of that same aspect of, of some of the uh, discovery of exenatide. It was really related to the fact that the Gila monster will often um, go off food for s months and months at a time. And when you consider it, you know, even from a glycemic standpoint, their first, their first meal of a season, um, which they're probably packing down a pretty good meal, they're, they're, they're having a huge uh, secretion in insulin and glucose. So they need a very potent, um, you know, very potent peptides or proteins to regulate that. So it was, it was a similar school of thought of what you just described. Cool. Yeah. That's one thing that fascinates me so much is, is the, the, um, th that's actually one of the things that really launched me into the research aspect. Like I knew I wanted to work with reptiles and stuff, but I watched a documentary all about venom and how it helps with medical research and all that stuff and i thought that was so cool and so i wanted to go into research that's initially what i wanted to do but now i've wanted to go more into like the conservation aspect and stuff but yeah the, re the research sorry. sorry for jumping in there I'll let, no, no, um, go ahead. I mean, there is a huge um opportunity because uh you know even when you consider what we know about um you know, treating diseases and reptiles, it's still pretty limited. Um, and, and we don't even really understand that's kind of even part of uh, my training as a pharmaceutical scientist. My, my specialist was, um, specialty was kind of uh, uh, pharmacokinetics and kind of the ADME properties of, of, uh, of a drug. And so how it's absorbed, how it's distributed, how it's metabolized and how it's excreted. So if you consider pharmacology as being um, kind of that study of what the, a pharmaceutical drug is doing to uh, the body of an organism. Pharmacokinetics is almost the inverse of that. It's describing what the body is doing to the drug and how it's, how it's um, being handled, again, how it's absorbed, distributed, metabolized, and eliminated. And, and you think about reptiles, we know very little about the mm -hmm. disposition of those products, you know, how it's absorbed and, and distributed, metabolized, and eliminated. So we had... Um, even a couple of experiments, a researcher and I at Ohio State were doing some of these pharmacokinetic studies uh, of even anesthetic agents and green iguanas. And really? so I, I suspect even Nate was probably doing his share of uh, PK studies. But, uh, you know, even if there was some funds to really better understand, again, the, these pharmacokinetics of different therapeutic products to support um you know, disease treatment in animals, uh, animals, particularly reptiles and lizards, because we we still are guessing uh, a lot of the times. That's even assuming you can find a, you know, an exotics uh, vet, you know, that really has a good understanding of of reptile medicine. I've I've struggled in that department, which which uh, kind of coming. Uh, you, you've heard me talk about high quality captive husbandry and care. There's a reason that I'm OCD because I find that if you're providing uh, really exemplary captive care and husbandry. Uh, you you rarely have um, uh, disease um, outbreaks or other pathologic conditions to tend with. And and knock on knock on wood. And 
over 35 years, um, I've had virtually no ill effects or uh, or disease uh, in my collections or animals that have really suffered any kind of um, adverse effects or pathology. And I, I've attributed that uh, almost exclusively to just uh, perfect captive care and husbandry. So sorry to sorry to sidetrack you there, Matt. No, is that and that's a good point because they're so um, they've changed so little over so long. You know, there's got to be something going on, right? That you know we should look into, you know, and stuff. Well, but and we have all of there's you know there's a fairly sobering um, statistics. I'm not going to remember the source. So as a bad researcher, I'm going to give you a statistic and not be able to cite it. But um, you know, we we you know even uh, Micah. Uh, and I and Josiah now, we've done a lot of reptile husbandry training and even reptile medicine training for uh, folks that are studying to be vet techs. Uh, even I've had opportunity to even provide a little reptile husbandry and medicine training for uh, veterinary students. And, and some students, like even students, uh, you know, a, a vet student in training at Ohio State University, may get two or three hours of reptile medicine and four years of, of uh, professional training. Uh, that's how little emphasis on some of the exotic species. Um, but again, so you, you, and you kind of come back to the husbandry standpoint, which is still sobering and not to not to make this too sobering. Uh, they estimate still greater than 90 percent of sto store bought reptiles will probably perish in their first year wow. uh, in, in a captive environment. And, and that's because a lot of folks just aren't educating themselves and making a concerted effort to provide a, a suitable captive um, husbandry requirements that meet their, their natural, uh, kind of their, their, uh, their natural environment, environmental conditions. And, and, and that is a tragedy because, and it's, this is something, you know, that I'm a little bit on my soapbox on because, you know, when I was, 10, 11, 12, 13, as I was described, probably maybe Paul Bodnar and others described the same thing. Certainly some of your other part podcast guests, we, we didn't have the internet. Uh, we didn't have YouTube. Uh, we didn't have, um, you know, social media uh, and, and some of this, uh, you know, some of the technology that we obviously had. We, we had a handful of books uh, and I'd go to every library I could to just even see how many books they would have on reptiles and, and, and as everyone in my generation probably knows, it was maybe two or three. Uh, and we read them from front to back as many times as we could. But even that just that just barely scratched what, you know, what we knew about reptiles um, and certainly about their care. So now when you consider the resources that we have, you know, particularly if someone is buying a new snake or a new lizard, um, I mean, there's just a an abundance of information on the internet uh, to really educate yourself, equip yourself to be able to provide not just okay care, uh, but to provide, you know, exemplary care. Because in the right environment, some of these reptile species, particularly the snakes and the lizards we've described are, you know, they're in the 20 to 30 plus year um, lifespan or longevity category. And so that's, that's quite a responsibility. The flip side of it is, is true though, where, you know, you folks buy a reptile, they buy an aquarium and, uh, they, they put the snake or lizard in it and kind of throw food at it every week. That, mm -hmm. uh, that's probably an environment that's 
that is uh, unfortunately conducive to disease and an early demise. So I was just having this conversation with someone too um, about how the reptile hobby has kind of um, increased and exploded in the recent years. And that's had like two, two, two main effects, one good and one bad. The good part is a lot more people are doing it. So a lot, um, so, you know, more people are experimenting with it essentially in like finding better practices. And so better practices are going around, which is good. The bad part is it's, it's kind of becoming like um, how dogs are, how people just buy a dog and have no idea how to take care of the dog. Cause dogs are, there's a bunch of different types of dogs and they all require different needs and stuff. And reptiles are the same, are the same except, you know, tenfold. You yeah. know? And, and so, you know, people are, because of that, there's a lot of people just buying reptiles and they don't do the research into what it is and everything. And so you get that people that are, that don't know how to properly take care of it or the reptile isn't in the best conditions and stuff. Or you can get to, you know, where people are getting like a Burmese python or some snake that gets really big and they don't have the proper facilities to take care of it and stuff. Um, I was actually just at PetSmart not too long ago. I was picking something up. I don't remember what. And I always like to look, peruse at their, what reptiles they have and stuff. And they had a Savannah monitor hmm. for like 40 bucks and stuff. And I'm like, that's not a really good, like, if you're going to PetSmart to get a reptile, you're a beginner, you know? And and that's not a very good beginner reptile pet, a Savannah monitor. I just didn't think that was, especially because, you know, we know why Savannah monitors are only 40 bucks. But someone going to PetSmart to get in a reptile, they see a, li a cool lizard like that for 40 bucks, they're going to pick it up. And I I just think that's a bad idea. Yeah, and it's it probably you know, it, it elicits an impulse purchase and exactly and uh, versus, you know, a well-researched and foreign purchase so that you realize, you know, what the responsibility you'd be taking on. So it's, you know, that's, that's human nature at its best. And there's a normal distribution of, of, of people. What I enjoy the most about, uh, about this hobby though, is individuals just like you both and, and the molds and Paul Bodnar and Zach and all the people that we've mentioned that, that really, that uh, you know, even say, even saying the word hobby is is a is not really um, capturing kind of the true essence. I mean, it's something mm -hmm. that we're passionate about, uh, that we want to uh, be successful at. That the care and the well-being of the animals is our uh, is uh, of the most critical importance to us, and that if that we that we also want to just educate others so that they're not just um, so that okay or average is not uh, the goal, but that e exceptional uh, care is uh, is the goal, and and because ultimately that's a life uh, that that we're responsible for. And and again, I don't do um, much breeding, or if I do, it's a bit it's a bit calculated. Sometimes that is to just advance the hobby. So it might be uh, corn snakes, which I do think in many instances do make a great kind of first time reptile. Uh, um, species to work with. Uh, but in other cases, it might be species that, that fits a little bit more on the conservation side where I do think if, if um, you know, that my, my efforts might actually minimize some of the pressure on, on wild caught populations. So there's a little bit of a, a decision tree there for when I do consider what, you know, what, um, what would be a good captive breeding project or not. Yeah. Like, uh, I mentioned a map before that 
I have a subadult pair of Maruki scrub pythons. Yes. And I really want to breed those. Uh, a because I think they're really cool and yeah. I don't really like them. But B also because I noticed like almost like ninety five to ninety nine percent of all scrub pythons in the U.S. are imports. Yeah. So I kind of want to change that around and get and at least contribute a little bit to some captive breeding population in the U.S. a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And also, everyone I talk to says that it looks like uh, Fish and Wildlife might outright ban their importation in a few years. So, uh, yeah, who it, wanna... it will be the whole the whole industry will be interesting to see how it evolves over the next um, over the next five to ten years. I'm I'm uh, enjoying every minute of it uh, while I can. Yeah, yeah. yeah I I heard someone uh, say that. Uh, green tree pythons are going to be the next wa- new wave ball python. So oh boy. that's pretty wow. interesting. That'd be interesting to see. Yeah. yeah speaking of Petco, actually, uh, it's about a year and a half ago, maybe. I walked in and I saw they had a green tree python on sale there for four hundred dollars, and I was like, "Wow, this is a this is a Petco green tree python. I'm I'm not I'm not going to get it because I don't want to have it die <laughs> on me like three weeks later." Yeah. Yes, that would be. Um... Yeah, I, that that's something I've never seen at a Petco. They they usually they're usually kind of consistent with the uh, you know corn snake, leopard geckos, bearded dragons, and, exactly, uh, and a few yeah. other odds and ends. Chameleons sometimes. Yeah. Going off of like the impulse buy thing too, um, I know it, that could be hard. I talk to Nate about this all the time because I whenever I I see a reptile, like I get really excited. You know, I'm like, oh, I, you know, I I want that. You know. And, and, and then I have to, I always have to sit there and say, like, if I go to like a reptile show or something, I always have to bring someone with me that's not as into reptiles that can tell me, no, you shouldn't get, you know, so I have to like always pause and like let my rational mind take back over and be like, all right, no, this is, and um, a funny story. We recently saw a place that was having like a sale on uh, monitor lizards. And um, I was like, Ooh, I really want one of those. And um they had we were and so me and Nate were talking about maybe splitting on a Merton's water monitor and stuff. Yeah, and I yeah. really want and it was a monitor lizard on top of that. So I was like, I really want that and stuff, but I did some research into it and decided it wasn't a good idea and stuff. But but yeah, that's how that's how it can it can be tough with those impulse buys and stuff to like calm yourself as you were saying before, let your rational mind take over and and kind of uh stop you from doing something. Yeah, I mean I'm I uh yeah, it, being a little OCD has helped me in that regard because yeah. I'm definitely kind of researching, uh, thinking about whether it's practical and, and and usually coming to a sound conclusion. I mean, there there will be an occasional, um, like I, I did just recently, <laughs> I keep adding to my list. Um, I, I, uh, I And why, I don't have a great explanation for why, Just I just thought, you know, the... Um, you know, they were a good size and, and, um, and again, it kind of just brought me back maybe even to my childhood, uh, with, you know, with one exception, but the, um, I got a trio of, of young, uh, 1.2 albino checkered garter snakes. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I just recently got those and it was a little bit of a, a spur purchase, but I mean, the difference was that I have, um, I know that I had, you know, at least two racks that were completely empty, not only, yeah. Not only, but, you know, so I had, I know that I had the, um, the caging and the conditions required to care for them and I could have it set up, you know, in about 
10 minutes uh, each at that. Uh, and, and I really have enjoyed them. I mean, they, uh, they kind of get a minced meal of a little bit of uh, pinky and an earthworm and even a little tilapia. And they're, um, it seems like they're doubling in size almost ever, every week. Their, their lifespan is not, not nearly as long, but um, yeah, they, they've surprised me. I wasn't looking for them, but when I uh, found them, it was, I was guilty of a little bit of an impulse, uh, impulse purchase. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're going to impulse purchase something, garter snakes far away. There was no breaking of the bank. There was definitely no breaking of the bank. So you're right. If you're going to do an impulse, garter snake is, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the easiest one to do. But thank you. You made me feel better about myself, Nate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, speaking of that whole monitor thing, one of the thing reasons I kind of one of the reasons I kind of backed out of that old idea from Matt was uh at the same time I had got in contact with the guy selling that uh uh diamond carpet. Yeah. So I was like, I mean I'm not rolling in cash, so I'm kinda like, you know what? Yeah. I'm gonna I think I'll go with the diamond carpet just because A, I don't know when another one's gonna come up on the market at this price ever again. Yeah. And yep. B, I think B, it kind of matches more my uh, interests, and they're a lot easier to take care of, a lot less data. Yeah, I mean, love. yeah, you definitely have to be good stewards of your of your funds. I will say, as you, um, you know, as your income increases, the uh, I my wife has informed me. So does the uh, so a bit does the size of the hobby. Uh, so I think she was hoping I would grow out of it, like back even when we first, because uh, we were high school sweethearts. I honestly think she felt you know, I was just, this was a phase I was going to grow out of. And, and now I, I think um, she realizes, no, quite the opposite. And if anything, with, with increased income has probably been a, a direct correlation to the, you know, to my, um, to the sophistication of the hobby. I mean, I buy, I, I try to buy um, good uh, husbandry systems, good reliable thermostats, you know, a little bit of automation and, and, and good, uh, just, you know, everything I want to, you know, to try to, um, and so yes, even the value of some of the animals I'd bring into the collection has gone up. I'm, I'm still a little thrifty. So I've been at a few of the Tinley shows, and I think I've seen snakes even in the area of forty-five to sixty thousand dollars, maybe even occasionally higher. You think about the first, you know, some of the first morphs that come out of uh, and a ball pythons. Those those sticker prices are are definitely and uh, you know higher than fifty thousand. That that's never going to be me. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait until. Um, you know, I'll wait a few years until the price point comes back because I just, it's even hard for me to justify big spend, um, you know, uh, even for something I love. The, uh, yeah, but, uh, I was, I said this about myself, and I believe uh, you believe it the same way, Matt, but me personally, I'd rather keep like a more rarely kept species than the hyper expensive marked up morph of a commonly kept species. So, yeah, I'm I'm there, and that kind of even took me back to the comment that I made earlier. I'm just I'm even kind of going through um, kind of that soul searching phase of the hobby, and 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 um, you know I'm I'm empty nester. My kids are have uh, one. You know, my daughter got married, and my son's in college. So um, 
you know, as my wife and I kind of even think about our, our pre-retirement plan, I think that'll still include reptiles, but it might include, you know, some travel, which might have me downsizing the collection a bit. And so I'm, I'm really starting to focus on what, what, um, what maybe genus, um, that I want to focus in specifically, uh, or maybe it's even related to um, their environmental habitat and the and those conditions that I feel I can best satisfy or, or recreate and um, you know and and uh, you know in a basement in Central Ohio. Um, so I'm I'm kind of going going through that, but I, I I do pretty well know that it's not going to be a ball python. Yeah. <laughs> God love the ball python breeders. That market is well supplied and, and maybe even saturated but that's that's uh just won't be me i was talking to nate about this i had so i'm going in uh, june i'm going to the university of queensland in australia to get my master's degree awesome. so i've kind of i've kind of downsized my collection and stuff so i told him i said i kind of feel lame because all i have left right now is a ball python <laughs> that i got for free and a leopard gecko that i got for free <laughs> yes. so and then and then i have a tegu but but, sure. but I don't, because the legality, I live down here in Florida, because the legality keeps like changing. It's it's changed like twice since being down here in Tegu's. I don't tell people a lot on that. So when people ask me, so what kind of pets do you have? I feel lame when I tell them, oh, a ball python and a leopard gecko. They're probably sitting <laughs> like, oh, yeah, this guy likes reptiles. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but um, going off of what you said with the as the price goes as you you know your wage goes up you know the the yeah you're spending yeah your spending will go up i never thought about it but when you said that i was thinking about it i do the same thing whenever like if i get like like if someone pays me i don't know like whatever for something or like i get i don't know like tax refund or i get a job that i get paid more I, I noticed the first thing I look at is I go through looking at different <laughs> reptiles that I could have as a pet or whatever. So yeah, I do no, the same we, thing. We kind of spend to our means. So there's, right. uh, <laughs> so yeah, that is your discretionary income goes up. So it doesn't what, uh, what you'll find your, your uh, reptile budget will probably be going up at least that much. So. Yeah. I often say uh, my parents are probably uh, really irresponsible to not supervise me at a reptile expo when when I'm making adult money. Yeah. <laughs> that's why that's why I have to bring someone who's you know not as into reptiles so they can have a, a little bit more of a rational mind with uh, like expos and stuff to tell me like no you shouldn't get that that's not good. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we actually even have the the um, the All Ohio Reptile Show will be this Saturday, and so yeah. I'll, I'll have some corn snakes and. And Micah and I have even mentioned before, I mean, like corn, it's, um, you know, it's not about the value. I mean, for, if, if I find the right buyer um, or the right enthusiast uh, at the show, um, I think even, you know, there, I, I might just give that corn snake away as a gift, particularly if I think it's someone that, you know, an, an individual on the, on the far uh, right of the distribution curve that we were describing that that's going to be all in that's going to be that I can tell has already been kind of researching and and that I know that I'll have that peace of mind that that animal is going to be going into um, a captive environment that would be just as good maybe even better than I could provide uh, then that's like yeah no problem here you go enjoy your your corn snake even if we do put a price on it, it'll probably be like 25 bucks because I do know 
Um, I've kind of referred to the corn snake even a couple of times as the gateway um, gateway species for uh, future reptile hobbyists. And, and um, so that, that's a good thing. I think there's, uh, I, I do want to bring in folks to the hobby and, and hopefully mentor them and coach them in ways that they, uh, that they end up uh, doing even very good things for the hobby over their years. Yeah. I, uh, when, when I was a kid first getting into it, like me and my friend made it like a list of like all the reptiles we want to keep. And of course it's like, a thousand different reptiles and stuff and it's like you know komodo dragons and yep. stuff like that um and then you know as you guys were talking as you get older you kind of realize okay wh what kind of stuff do i really enjoy and, and kind of yeah going it down and, and stuff but i just got a friend into it into keeping he's more into frogs but he's kind of going into reptiles as well and stuff and he's he's going through the same phase he's like dude there's so many ones I want to keep as a pet. He's listening to all this stuff. I was like, dude, I know exactly what phase you're into. And, and trust me, you'll you'll kind of get a niche of what you like and stuff. But well, it's, it's fun to watch. And there is, I mean, you're even, because if I had to think that a, a, a species that's been on my bucket list for for literally decades. Um, and and one of these days, you know, it might be, um, might be, you know, like a, it's a caiman lizard. And, and so I'd, I'd really want, though, to um, to have a first-class display, you know, a, a, yeah, a semi-aquatic, sure. not, not an aquarium, but, you know, something that would be, you know, almost the equivalent to a small room uh, that you could really, and, and I'm not, I'm not quite there yet, but, you know, who knows if I, um, if I move, uh, I'm even, you know, looking at whether it's time to snowbird and, and maybe live somewhere where it doesn't snow. Uh, in the winter, or maybe even all year round, maybe that's uh, a better opportunity in the next move. We'll see. But the yeah, Cayman lizards definitely been on a bucket list for thirty plus years. Me and Nate talked about that. Cayman lizards are such a cool lizard. Like if you can, can get a cool display, it's such a cool display animal. Yeah. yeah, there's been a few zoologic parks. I can't remember which one. I think YouTube. Um, I saw it on YouTube, and they they just nailed it. Um, I mean, you, they they just nailed the exhibit. They they it might have even been Tennessee Aquarium or something. Uh, they 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 poured into uh, that display. Yeah, but uh, going back to the top notch uh, husbandry and stuff like that, I'm currently going through a phase of just trying to increase the like the size and quality of my enclosures as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And I'm really starting to enjoy it more and more because now. I used to be kind of in the cult of the rack system, mm -hmm. so to speak. I'm starting to switch back more to like vision cages and uh, PVC enclosures, stuff like that. Right. And I'm enjoying it so much more because now I can see my animals again. I don't have to pull them out of a tub or something like that. I can see them just moving around being natural. Yeah. And it's especially funny with my uh, sub-adult female Maruki scrub. She has... At first, I thought she had a really bad personality, but now I just fall in love with her because every time I walk into my shed, first thing she does, she perks up and she literally comes all the way to the far <laughs> side of the enclosure and starts just looking at me, just following me around everywhere movement I make. And at first, I thought it was food, but I fed her literally twice this week and she still just follows me around. So, yeah, yeah I'm I'm with you on that as well. I my caging is there's there are some racks, but then there's some also large. Um, you know, PVC cages, even I just graduated the, you know, the false water cobras into to large or kind of terrestrial 
cages, but but with large large uh, containers that they can soak in, and and um, you know I, there's a balance there because even being in you know being in the industry this you know as long as I have sometimes sometimes there's this notion that that reptiles and snakes need just enormous cages. And sometimes just the opposite is true. I mean, when you particularly, when I'm particularly working with someone and trying to understand, you know, because probably like both of you, um, you know, we get the frequently asked questions and, and sometimes that's just why is my, you know, why is my snake or lizard, why is it not thriving? It's not eating. It's, 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 uh, you know, it's just not doing well. And, and more often than not, um, I think, you know, I'll, I'll have found that the, um, one of the reasons for an animal not eating is, well, it's always husband related, almost always husband related. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just that the cage is too big. And so it's, you know, so bring it to a smaller cage, uh, put a smaller hide, not a hide that it could, you could fit three of that snake under, but a hide that that snake barely fits in, that its body is compressed up against the side. It's, it feels secure. Uh, and I think that there is a lot to say about that because the, I like, I'm an advocate of the natural, kind of the naturalistic um, uh, tanks and the full size tanks. But even there, I think you have to have copious hiding places. Otherwise, just the natural, um, the natural instincts of that animal. It's not an apex predator. It's, it's still an animal that's probably preyed upon. And it's going to be um, feeling a bit insecure and maybe even a little bit in dress if it's in too large of an environment uh, where it just doesn't or it even can't feel secure. So uh, again, I do think there's a balance. There, there's some species that I work with that I, I, I just wouldn't put in a ginormous kind of a display um, environment because I think that it would be. Um, it would not be a benefit to their well-being, uh, their health and well-being. So, uh, but there's others that that I would. So, I think a lot of that kind of goes back to just a knowledge of of the species. This is something, yeah, that that, um, that even um, I'm remembering the uh, the reptile instructor. I think it was St uh, Dr. Scott Moody. He was at um, Ath at Ohio University, and he even evaluated some of the natural range of timber rattlesnakes and some other species down in Wayne National Forest. And and you'd be surprised how little uh, range some of these reptiles uh, have in their in their natural environment. They're they're not, you know, they're not uh, traveling miles. Now that, you know, obviously there's some exceptions to that. There's almost always an exception to the rule. But uh, yeah, I, I'm rambling a bit. I, I just still think, again, if, if even I have an animal that is that is not feeding well, sometimes um, option number one is I will even put it in a slightly smaller enclosure um, just to make it feel a little, have it feeling a little bit more secure. That's almost always uh, gets the job done. Yeah, I was actually just having this conversation with, on yesterday I was doing a kayak tour and um, <clears throat> the ladies were, these ladies were asking about that because they said they were, I don't remember where they were, but they were, these guys had these reptiles that they were showing and they're in small cages. And she was like, she was like, why, you know, why are they in such small cages and stuff? And I was, and, and she was asking about like rack systems and stuff like that. And I was, and I was explaining to her, you know, like, um, not all snakes. I mean, exactly what you just said, not all snakes need a lot of room and stuff. And so, 
Um, that was interesting. I like to hear different people's opinions on that because the hobby has really changed um, right now, at least. It's kind of morphing from racks and stuff. Not a oh, lot yeah. of people are doing racks anymore and, and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, for um, all of us that listen to, uh, you know, Brian Barczyk, uh virtually every day, we, we see him going through that that evolution as we speak. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and going with that, the, the hide thing too, my ball python, people, people ask me like, cause they, they think the, the hide that I have for them is too small and stuff. And I've actually experimented with different size hides and stuff. Yes. And if it's a lot, if I use any larger of a hide than I have, he, he doesn't use it at all. Yep. No, um, I, I agree. I mean, when I'm looking for a hide, I'm, I'm looking for a hide that, that, um, that snake can barely fit into. Yeah. For sure. You know, that, that really feels secure in there. And again, the, even something as, as subtle as the size of that hide can be uh, like an on-life switch in terms of their uh, kicking on their feeding response. So, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Notice that with uh, the red mountain bows, I got like those uh, cork bark tubes. Yep. And like the male, especially, he could barely fit <laughs> in it, but he'll like, go when he'll double up and get there as tight as he can get. It's yeah. like a, it's like a wood security baby. blanket for him. Well, and that's, I mean, even you think about it in the, in the rare instance, fortunately it's rare that we've ever had an, you know, an escape in our collections, our facilities, you're, you know, it's none of those stories usually end that you, you know, that you find him sitting right in the middle of the open room. Uh, they've usually jammed themselves on the, in the, tightest hole under the freezer under you know a refrigerator somewhere where you couldn't even imagine that they could have penetrated uh, but yet they they found that spot and um, so I mean you, you even think about that situation um, I think maybe one reptile escape in my life and it was even a black tree uh, monitor that uh, I actually find it fortunately I found everything, everything, uh, even usually within 24 hours. Um, he was sitting right in front of the cage, uh, waiting to go, uh, go back in. I think he was ready to be fed. So that, that was lucky. Everything else has been, you know, like finding a needle in a haystack. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm usually, you know, I'm usually looking for the, the tiniest little hole that they kind of might've, uh, could have slithered into. That's one reason personally, I, I mean, I, I enjoy snakes and stuff. Um, but I like to have uh, lizards more as pets because yeah. they're a bit more active. Um, yep. You can see them more, and I, I like that kind of thing. I, I'm also big into handling. I like to be able to handle. Yep. I, I don't have to handle things, but that's that's one thing that I really like is is I like to handle things. So I, I'll pick and choose animals based on how yeah, handled they are. We'll have to turn you on to the false water cobra, Matt. You just you may just <laughs> you may just like those. I mean, they are active, all yeah. kinds of active, and they really do. They really do um, uh, calm down. I mean, I've seen some real massive adults that I think they kind of, you know, I think, you know, mine are only um, not even quite two years old. So they're kind of going through that terrible two stage. Um, but but once once they get out, uh, like, you know, once I bring them out of the cage, kind of get their mind uh, off of food and just chilling a little bit, um, they're they're. Uh, you know, actually even two of the three are, are puppy dog tame, but that there's about 15 seconds. It feels about three minutes where, where <laughs> they're just thinking about food and you're thinking about your fingers. And, 
and <laughs> and once they get chilled out, they're uh, fine. But you you may actually enjoy those thoroughly, yeah, especially yeah. like a real active species because they're on You're the sure. move, they're diurnal. Um, yeah, they're very active, and even the yellowtail kribos are a lot like that too, but a little uh, even more chill than the um, than the false water cobras for sure. And you know what, what's funny about that too is whenever he, people hear that you're into reptiles, they automatically think snakes. And so people all the time think I'm like, oh, yeah. he, they call me sn like snake guy, and they think I'm huge into snakes. And I really like snakes. I mean, you know, it's it's lizards of all reptiles, it's lizards first than snakes. But I'm, I'm more of a lizard guy, and it's just it's yeah. just funny how like everyone yeah. automatically thinks you're a snake guy just because you like reptiles. You and know? turtles, tortoises again. I, I also a bucket list item. I I now that I've finally seen how large they get as an adult, I don't know that they'll ever be on a my my you know checked off my bucket list. But you know, is there anything cooler than a mata mata turtle? Oh, um, yeah, those are so cool. absolute. Talk, talk about. <laughs> evolutionary adaptation i mean there's just nothing more spectacular but i i honestly didn't appreciate how large they got until i finally saw a full-size adult and it was you know it was snapper turtle like alligator snapper turtle size so i was like for, forget that um that's not gonna happen i don't you know i i don't have the resources so but i think it'd be neat to get a tortoise um i've thought about turtles in the past, um, they just, I mean, I, I like them. That I think they're cool. I've kept, like, ones I've caught for, like, a little bit and then let them go and stuff. Yeah. They don't excite me as much as other stuff, but I think a yeah. tortoise would be really neat to have. Yeah, red foot, uh, red foots yeah. are, are kind of a cool. Even even the eastern box turtle kind of for native species, they, they're uh, they're kind of cool. But definitely the, the red foots. Um, I, I couldn't handle anything that gets much bigger than a red foot, you know, like the sulcatas, you know, mm, you know, great, great. You know, you buy them, they're cute little golf ball size. And then, you know, and then again, if, if you'd research and see just how large they got, it'd be like, nope, no, thank you. You're right. And, yeah. and I, and with the lifespan of, I, I don't know, I'm, I, I think probably a hundred years now I'm too old. I have to be able to, right, right. Time, so. Me, yeah, me and uh, Nate went and saw Ty Park's Iguana Land and saw his sulcatas. That was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm cursed with the, the desire to have crocodilians. So, <laughs> yes. about size, size restrictions. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, and I, I'm going to have to go back and listen to Paul's uh, podcast. You've had a couple of podcasts which have been crocodilian focus on I'm, I'm gonna yeah. have to even go back because they're they're definitely uh f absolutely fascinating but i just like i said i i don't know that i'll ever unless i move somewhere south where it's quite tropical all year and and i could have some outdoor enclosures um i'm just not going to be there in a you know in, in a in an environment like uh central ohio just just not yeah. don't have that big of a house and don't have that patient of a wife. Uh, and so may, maybe, you know, you know, I moved to somewhere more tropical might maybe, but I don't know. I really like it down here in Florida. And I, I've, I've toyed with that in my mind that if I got to the point where I had a place and I had like a backyard with not a lot of people around, it'd be cool to have like a gator in the, in the back and stuff. That'd be really neat. So yeah. Uh, just yeah, even that, uh, yeah. Even that, 
Right. As we know from, um, you know, the and even that's not without risk, as we know from uh, Crutchfield's recent uh, issue and experience, unfortunately. Right. Wait, what, what happened with that? Where he had, um, as I understand it, this is kind of third party, but that he had some outdoor enclosures that were um, uh, somewhere between terrorized and burglarized. He had some locks busted off. And, uh, really? Yep. And some of his collection was uh, was released um, or stolen or something to that effect. So that's crazy. There, there, there is. I'm not going to name the zoo because I don't know if they'd want this to be out. But um, they had some guy that was drunk go through and bust the glass on one of their. Um, I want to say it was a retic. Um, but I could be wrong and take one of the shards of glass and actually like um, attempt to kill the snake. Oh, that was that's terrible. I know it's crazy. Yeah, that's terrible. Uh, one downside to having a place open to the public is you have to deal with the public. Yep. Absolutely. Well, uh, Matt, you have any other questions? Um, actually, yeah, I do have what, uh, another, I do have one other question. What, um, what, what got you into going into pharmaceuticals and stuff like that? <laughs> that's, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not, it, it was quite, um, yeah, quite opportunistic and maybe a little bit of fate and, uh, and, and, uh, probably a little bit of luck and, and maybe a little bit of uh, divine intervention, um, maybe combination of all of those. Cause I, I wasn't even really sure that I wanted to go to uh, college. And, um, but I, you know, uh, right out of high school, I was uh, working in the Marion County road crew laying blacktop. And I think that that was a job that made me think, you know, maybe college is, is not as bad as, um, as I thought. And so I did get enrolled in college. Um, as I mentioned, kind of did the undergraduate in zoology and um, had really no, interest at all. Um, didn't even think I was equipped, frankly, uh, to be considering a PhD program, but, but I was doing, uh, I was working for, um, uh, um, the division chair of pharmaceutical chemistry, Bill Hayton at, at Ohio State University College of Pharmacy. And, and, and what was almost just as cool as reptiles is he, he did, um, pharmaceutical research in thin fish aquaculture. So, you know, my graduate test species most days were uh, channel catfish, rainbow trout, and some other uh, freshwater fish that we would do um, different residue depletion of, different xenobiotic products. We would do those, the, the pharmacokinetic studies that I described, uh, and, and our test species was, um, was different fish. And we were often looking at different products that might find their way into um, you know, aquaculture farms, either uh, in an approved way or in an unapproved illegal way, they might find their way into that pond and ultimately into the um, edible tissues of fish. And so we were really doing a lot of that research supported by the, the Center for Veterinary mm -hmm. Medicine, FDA, to make sure that we were protecting human consumers of that, uh, of the, the, those thin fish uh, flesh. Um, so I was... Um, Boy, I just went all over the place there. But <laughs> so I was working for him and I was honestly contemplating either getting a job um, even in aquaculture uh, or 
at another, you know, some other kind of facility where my undergraduate zoology could kind of be applied. Um, or I was even thinking about being a high school science teacher, all of the above. And my uh, boss, who happened to be this division chair, Bill Hayton, said, you know, why don't you just come and uh, pursue your PhD and we'll, we'll pay for all of your education and we'll even give you a, um, a stipend uh, that'll help pay the bills. So I think, um, honestly, the, the, uh, that was a door that opened that I never thought would open for my life. And I passed the, uh, the IQ test and, and, <laughs> uh, and, I, and I signed up and, and the rest is history. So I ended up finishing a great degree from a great uh, university and, um, and that has just kind of opened doors uh, to all sorts of opportunities in the pharmaceutical industry, companies like Biogen, Eli Lilly and company now on the contract research side of things with companies like uh, Will Research that was acquired by Charles River and and the rest is is history. But we are um, all of those companies were really focused on on one thing, and that was um, helping to create healthier lives. And that that has motivated me every day of my life, just trying to be um, uh, just trying to create impact and influence on others that that hopefully make their their uh, their journey a little a little sweeter. So that's kind of the long answer to that story, Matt. But it was uh, maybe I suspect there was a fair bit of God involved in that one because it wasn't it wasn't my plan. Um, it wasn't my plan to be doing a Ph.D. I don't even think I knew what that meant. Uh, well, I was in the PhD program. <laughs> Did you ever consider um, doing anything with reptiles? I know there probably weren't <laughs> as many like opportunities or anything, but I I definitely definitely did, and um, and and kind of s still do uh, a bit. Uh, it, at the time, definitely, it, if it existed, uh, it wasn't aware to me. I didn't even know what I didn't know in terms of uh, reptile opportunities. So I think. Um, you know, this is a, like many fresh graduates, you're thinking about survival right. and paying the bills and paying, uh, you know, uh, paying for gas. And so I think that uh, um, I, I, if I considered it, I didn't consider it too much because I just didn't think that there was going to be an opportunity out there for me that was going to uh, help, help, pay um, help pay the bills. So life, life kind of intervened and um, and I went the um, I went directly to the pharmaceutical route. And um, my first my first employer out of graduate school was Biogen, and they are still um, you know one of the uh, a preeminent biotechnology company that is probably most well known for their research in autoimmune disorders like uh, multiple sclerosis. They uh, they are I would say um, a market leader in the in the uh, uh, and the care of patients for multiple sclerosis. Yeah, well, it seemed to work out for you regardless. So. No, definitely no regrets. I've been blessed uh, beyond my wildest uh, imagination. So I've been uh, definitely been blessed. Awesome. Well, that seems like a good spot to end there unless, Nate, you have anything else to say? Nope. That'd be all awesome. Well, well yeah, appreciate you. Yeah, appreciate you guys both. And I was thinking um, when you said this could go an hour and a half, I think it there was no way. <laughs> but it actually went in like an hour and forty minutes, and it was uh, and and uh, it was great fellowship. Appreciated get uh, talking with you both and and talking about our shared passion and uh, enjoyed the conversation and appreciate you both very much.
Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. We appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you. Okay. Have a good one, guys. Have a great yeah, night. Yeah, you too. Bye now.